0: Are you ready to talk about parenting? Wow, okay. <laughs> politics, how about politics? <laughs> when, I <was> <clears throat> when I was a kid, I, I sometimes didn't take care of shutting the door when I went outside or came back inside. I don't know if your kids have that problem at all. Uh, you would think a normal response to that as a parent would be, um, you forgot to close the door. No, my mother would say, were you born in a barn? Yeah, that's <laughs> and, and the smart Alec in me always wanted to say, hey, it's good enough for Jesus. But the wiser part of me said, that's probably not a good idea. And I, I remember... Clichés like that when I was growing up, uh, different things that parents would say. That generation had a lot of clichés like that. And uh, there was another one that didn't surface so much with parents because it would be self-indicting. But maybe uh, you've dated a guy, for example, that at mealtime, if you didn't say it, you thought it. (laughs) Were you raised by wolves? (laughs) You you know, the kind of, it's usually a guy that's like that. Why? Well, animal parents, they don't quite have as much going for them as human parents do. There's an interesting verse in Job 39 when God's having a pretty tough conversation with Job. And he says, he says the ostrich, um, the ostrich mother is harsh with her young. Uh, she doesn't care whether they live or die, and then God goes on to say, "He he has that's because he hasn't given the ostrich wisdom. She lacks understanding, and so when we think about human parenting, uh, it, it should be a little different. Animal, God, if you're raised by wolves, um, you're basically going to have a mother and a father preoccupied with getting." You to wolf adulthood and be able to hunt for your food and that's it not worried about whether or not you get the right kind of mate they're not worried about whether or not they'll fix their eyes on Jesus and, and so forth and so on and so the title of my message this morning is not in parentheses raised by wolves how do parents decide how to parent their children so if you're you have kids at home How did you decide how you're going to raise them? Well, the vast majority of us human parents parent the way we were parented. It's the default in us. The problem with that comes when we marry someone who was raised quite differently than we were. And then that becomes kind of a tug of war with us. But it's still the instinct to parent the way I was parented. If that doesn't seem to be cutting it, where do we go from there? Well, there's all kinds of resources today. Imagine if you were a parent 200 years ago, what your options would have been to find some help. Today, you've got the internet, which is full of podcasts and articles and blogs, um, videos, you name it. You can go to Amazon.com. They have over 50,000 titles on parenting. By and large, we tend to look, or at least we used to, I should say, look as the next step after our own, what we saw our parents modeled, uh, we tend to go to experts. Increasingly today, that's not as typically true. And this is especially true, at least appears to be, for you moms. You tend to go to social media and look for friends and acquaintances and get their advice, or somebody that an acquaintance knows. And have their avi- advice brought to you I wonder how many of you would agree that by and large what you want when it comes to advice on how to be a parent is to find out what works in other words if you are parenting a particular way and it doesn't seem to be working you want to try Plan B or Plan C or Plan D, as long as you get to a plan that works. Now, here's a question I have for you, if that's true. What is the measurement of what works? In other words, are you after primarily to have your kids obey you? Or to have peace in the home? uh, To have respectful kids? Uh, To have kids that grow up to be really smart students. What what does it mean to say, I want to parent in a way that works? I'm going to do all I can in the next five weeks. Well, a bunch of other Sundays in there. But in this series, to dismantle that notion that your job as a parent is to find what works. God has an entirely different agenda for us than simply what works. Now, this morning we're going to, you might leave here after we're all done and say, hmm, that's not what I expected in parenting. That's because we have to set some foundations this morning. We have to establish a platform on which to build the things we're going to be talking about in subsequent Sundays. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for the uh, privilege of being uh, sons and daughters of the best father, the best parent we could ever have. For those of us who know Jesus, we have a, a perfect father, not just a good father, a perfect father, flawless, zero mistakes. And yet I find it interesting in my own years of rearing children how often I would go to other sources for counsel and advice on how to parent instead of going to the perfect father. And we need you this morning not only as the perfect father, but as the perfect voice, the perfect revelator who reveals truth to us about, yes, even things like how to be moms and dads. Open our hearts that we we would have open... um, that we'd be receptive to whatever it is you want to say to us. And I, I pray that you would speak through me when you can and in spite of me when you must. I pray especially for all the parents here this morning who are in the thick of it. And sometimes it feels like they're just barely holding on. Would you bring to them this morning a conviction that It doesn't need to be like that. That that your design for them, your call on them, does not mean that they have to be um, filled with anxiety, filled with fears, filled with worry, uh, filled with uncertainty. That there is a place of rest for the child of God, even when he or she is called upon in this amazing, remarkable, Mission called parenting. And I pray that we would be encouraged all over again in these weeks or perhaps even for the first time that in this call to parenting, you don't just thrust us into it and then abandon us. That you walk with us through it, that you empower us for it, that you reassure us in it. And at the end of the day, it's not our job to save our kids but yours, in Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday I took a third of this sermon and I moved it on to the sermon two weeks from now because the sermon was about an hour and 20 minutes. So you'll still get all of that, but it's, it's gonna come later. Uh, next week, Pastor Kyle is gonna be here. Uh, we'll be at Life Action this week out in Michigan, and then two weeks from now, we'll get back into this. So my first, I want to speak specifically to you uh, moms and dads this morning, and my first um, challenge to you, dads and moms, attend to your marriage. Now that might sound like an odd place to start in a series on parenting, which kind of parenting is best. But I'm convinced that everything else stands out if you're a two-parent home, Everything else stands or falls on this platform. Dads and moms attend to your marriage. And I wonder if you've been married now 10 years or eight years or 15 years and you're in the thick of parenting, whether you are attending to your marriage anymore or is it primarily your kids that you're focused on? Wasn't your marriage... Once prized. If it's not now, wasn't your marriage once prized? And I understand that if you're a single parent, uh, widowed, or divorced, this, is a, this, is, this piece isn't going to apply to you. Or if you're trying to co-parent with um, ex-spouse, uh, that's a whole different animal that we're not really going to touch on this morning, May, and the weeks ahead. Wasn't your marriage once prized? Now, with all the engaged couples that I've done premarital counseling for over the last 29 years, I've asked them all one question when we get to the night where we talk about um, children when they come along. I ask this question. Once you have children, if God blesses you with children, which relationship do you think matters most? The marriage or the relationship between parents and children? And without exception, in all of those years, without exception, every couple said marriage. Now, the reason for that is somewhat obvious. Even if they weren't thinking that direction, it's uppermost in their mind six months or three months before they get married. This is the man or the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And... I'm focused on that relationship right now. I'm not really thinking about children. You know, this is, might be two, three, four, five years down the road until we have kids. I wonder if I would get with those couples at 15 years or at 10 years and they have one, two, three, four children, if they would say the same thing. Which relationship should matter most in your home now that you have children, marriage, or the relationship between parents and children. Think about it this way. Genesis chapter 2, God institutes what? Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve, God says, a man shall leave his uh, mother and father and be united with his wife. Two shall become one flesh. So what did God institute in Genesis 2? Marriage. When did the kids come along? Genesis 4. After marriage, marriage came first. That order should speak to us about priority, about which relationship takes precedent. Now, when we start out as a married couple, my wife and I were married uh, five and a half years until we had our first uh, child, and you're focused on the marriage then. Even if you don't do it well, you're focused on just that relationship because it's the only one you have in the house. And then when the children come along, literally in an instant, all of that changes. It's all hands on the parenting deck. And the marriage instantaneously gets pushed to the background. Why? Because there's this little package of needs that has shown up in your nursery. And it requires everybody, and especially mom. If mom's nursing, she's got to get up several times during the night, take care of this child, the minutes that she lays there wondering if the crying will stop by itself, and then the time she gets up to actually go and do the feeding and the burping and putting the baby back down, back to bed, and the minutes it takes for her to get back to sleep, and then she's going to repeat, rinse, repeat. Rins, repeat. And she gets tired. Now, dad gets up in the morning, and I realize this is not true in every family. There's some differences here, but in most cases, she's staying home. Dad's getting up. He's going to work 6, 7, eight o'clock in the morning. And he's away from that all day. He comes home 5, 6 o'clock at night, and he may have five days a week. He may have two, three hours with this child, and then the weekends, but moms 24-7, 24-7, 24-7, feedings, diapers, crying, feedings, crying, 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 (laughs) and she's spent. (laughs) Meanwhile, dad's doing his own thing. He's still doing the same thing he was before the baby came along, you know, for eight, nine hours a day. And he's kind of, ha- his life is, is somewhat similar to what it used to be. Except when he came, comes home, there's a lot of crying. And he puts his arms around his wife and said, honey, it'll be okay. And there is this inexorable, at first almost unnoticed drift that comes apart. Husband here, wife here. You know when the, you have, say, five, six documents or w- web pages open on your, on your computer? And you're looking at one document, and when you want to move that one out of the way and look at another document, there's a little line in the upper right-hand corner that you click. And that document that's in front of you suddenly is Minimized It's still on your screen, but you can't see it now another document comes up another web web page comes up That's what happens in marriage when a child comes along You inadvertently or let's put it more accurately the child clicks on that little line and minimizes your marriage Now it doesn't mean to do that It's just a package of needs and it needs fed, and it needs changed, and it needs loved, and it needs held, and it needs all, all of the stuff that a baby needs. But in essence, the marriage without intentionality from mom and dad gets minimized. <clears throat> and unfortunately, that not only hurts children ultimately, it hurts husband and wife, and if you can believe this, it hurts the gospel. Let me read for you Ephesians five twenty-two to 28. I'm going to read it out of the English Standard Version since uh, the New Living Translation that I use and love has thoroughly butchered it. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Excuse me, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, there are two stories that are being told in this passage, and Paul keeps weaving them in and out. The one is the story of the love affair between Christ and his body, his church, people of God, and the other one is the love affair that you, if you're married, have with your wife or your husband and Paul says they they can't be separated in a number of ways one you Keith are to represent Jesus Christ in your home and you are to love Betty as selflessly as lay down your life Lee as Jesus did and you Betty are to submit to Keith as the church submits to Jesus Christ now when this passage is read or discussed there's all these tensions that surface and we start arguing about the wrong things in my opinion in this passage it's not that those things don't matter but that's not where we start where we start in my opinion is whose Not who has the authority and who has the clout, but who's responsible. Who's responsible? And not just who's responsible for the health of the marriage, but the picture of the marriage. Because your marriage, husbands and wives, are not just about whether you're having a good time in it. They are designed to be advertisement for the gospel to the watching world. And so when your marriage is on a good footing and when it's healthy and when it's giving life to both of you, it's like this grand, beautiful billboard to the watching world that says, you know what? Christianity really is about good news. And conversely, when your marriage is floundering and unappealing, it's like an old, boarded-up, neglected house in the city covered with graffiti. And there's nothing about it that is appealing to anybody looking in. There's nothing in your marriage that points anybody else to Jesus which it's intended to do. These days, I want to ask you a couple questions about your marriage, three of them. These days, is anger a common feature in your marriage? I could ask, I'm going to ask three questions. I could ask 20 that, could diagnose stuff in your marriage. Is anger a common feature in your marriage? Psychologist Dr. E. Mark Cummings, who has written hundreds of articles about the interplay relationship between parents and kids, the effect that parents have on kids, says that kids pay close attention to their parents' emotions. Kids pay close attention to their parents' emotions For information about how safe they are in the family when parents are destructive the collateral damage to kids can last a lifetime he makes this interesting comment that children are like emotional Geiger counters you know what a Geiger counter is so it's an instrument that measures uh, radiation you can't see radiation you can't smell it you can't hear it but if you have this little instrument it, it, it It alerts you to the fact that there's radiation in in the area. Children are like emotional Geiger counters. In other words, even if you don't blow up in front of them, they can pick up all kinds of signals what's going on in the marriage. And it either brings them comfort and assurance or makes them uneasy. These days, is anger a common feature in your marriage? Second question. And really, this question is probably probably the same one in terms of root issues. These days, is distance a common feature in your marriage? I say it's the same question because marriages can be noisily unhealthy or quietly unhealthy. And so maybe your approach is to kind of... You're very frustrated in your marriage and you just blow up. Or you're frustrated in your marriage and you just shut up. Be very quiet. Don't talk about stuff. I read a piece by a woman who, her husband, her name's Shelly Wetton, her husband came up to her one day. They had a two year old son and he it was like he couldn't bring himself to say it out loud so he kind of whispered i to his wife i don't think i want to be married anymore and this is what she writes sure we'd had problems didn't everyone our marriage flatlined over a period of time as if afflicted by an undetected disease slow stealthy in its destruction A progressive disconnection from each other proved lethal. The thing thing about growing apart is that it rarely happens to couples at the same exact time. It's a slow and painful unraveling that begins as an inkling that's assumed to be benign. In other words, it's like something's not right, but it'll probably be okay. It's assumed to be benign, but grows into something that is, with time, insurmountable. In other words it turns out not to be benign turns out to be malignant and this in most cases doesn't happen intentionally there's I'm intentionally trying to link this trajectory to the time because this is often for most marriages this is the time when it starts to happen when the children come along why because there's a shift and focus in the relationship. The priority becomes the children instead of the marriage. Last question, is your marriage going to end? Now, if you answered yes to either of the first two questions, you'd probably think, oh, that's it's not that bad. And we might have a, a lot of arguments, or we might be kind of quiet, don't say a lot to each other. But well, it's not that bad. It never is. Until it is. I've been inching my way through a book again the last year. I say, um, I say again, I've, this is either my third or fourth time through it. I bought it 20 years ago. It's called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce a 25-year landmark study by Judith Wallerstein. Judith was a senior lecturer at University of California, Berkeley, not a believer, not a Christian. And she began studying 131 children back in the early 70s. In the early 70s, when my wife and I got married, the prevailing wisdom was that divorce doesn't affect the kids. They bounce back. They're resilient, all of that. And so she began to study these children, and one of the criticisms that she's gotten of her work, shes she passed away a number of years ago, um, she wrote three books on these 131 children, and she chose them, there was, they represented 60 families, and they were all very much alike, in the sense that you know, she didn't pick families that had any kind of major dysfunction in them, no drug use, no um, major abuse, uh, no poverty she, uh, m- almost all middle class and the reason she did that is because she didn't want other variables apart from the divorce to be um, to color her findings so that you might say oh well that wasn't the result of divorce that was the result of this so anyway she tracked these children From eight, they were about ages six to 18 when she started her study. 25 years later, of course, some of them are in their early 40s. This was the final book she wrote about them. About them all as adults now. And the book, I I wrestled with what to share this morning. There's so much in here that is just mind-blowing. And I ended up pulling six out. So this This is the results of her study and what she's looked at the effects of divorce on these children. And this may have been the most uh, intriguing one for me. She said, for all children, the loss of the intact family structure stripped away the felt sense of safety and protection provided by the family structure, whatever its faults. Now, here was a curious finding that she discovered, especially after the kids were adults. That those whose parents stayed together, even if the marriage wasn't great, did better than those who even had an emotionally abusive home. I think I just said this backwards. Those who came from an emotionally abusive home or there's some kind of dysfunction like that, so, or the parents are loud and you know, there's verbal abuse between the spouses. They did better if the parents stayed together, the kids did better than if the parents split up. I, that blew my mind the first time I read it. For all children, the loss of the intact family structure stripped away the felt sense of safety and protection provided by the family structure, whatever its faults, did better if the family stayed together. Two, virtually all children of all ages felt rejected in the divorce because they interpreted the parent leaving as the spouse also uh, leaving the spouse as also leaving them the children 3 the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I'm I'm urging you not to settle for a less than flourishing marriage that you once had because without ever meaning to it could lead you down this road that you don't want to go to Almost all children in the study were angry at their parents and remained so for years. Wallerstein theorized that this was because the parents had violated the unspoken and unwritten rule that parents sacrifice for their children, not the other way around. Four, children in the study experienced a tremendous sense of disloyalty. If they believed they had had to take one parent's side, usually to protect that parent psychologically they felt disloyal to the other parent even if they did not take sides they still felt isolated and disloyal to both parents in other words they feel like they're between a rock and a hard place five a significant percentage of children felt guilt and even fault for the divorce they consequently believed that it was their duty to mend the marriage virtually all children held reunification fantasies for years. In other words, 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, after they divorce, they're still fantasizing that mom and dad could get back together. And by the way, this doesn't stop with children. Studies are increasingly proving that people who are adults when their parents divorce feel that way. They still fantasize about mom and dad getting back together. Some of you may have... Seen the movie years ago, The Parent Trap, trying to get mom and dad back together. Last, even 10 and 15 years into the study, most of the children continued to feel strong emotions, a deep sense of loss, feeling less protected, feeling less cared for, etc. One of the surprising things for Wallerstein was this book's results. Meaning that almost every adult had their own problems in relationships now going forward because of what happened in their home. They're unsure of themselves, they're uh, extra jealous, they're, they're f- afraid to move forward with a relationship lest they get moved aside and so forth and so on. Uh, I really encourage uh, you to get this book. My book is just underlined everywhere. And it will probably be, again, this time through. I'm about a third of the way through. So, my last point to moms and dads is, if any of these things are true about you, and if you're not where you think you should be, believe you should be, know you should be, here's my last admonition. Well, the first admonition after all the questions. Regroup. 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 I've quoted this for probably 30 years. I finally this week found out who the author of this wonderful statement was. It's Father Theodore Hesburgh, who was the president of Notre Dame University for 35 years. The best gift a father can give his children is to love their mother. The best gift a father can give his children is to love their mother. It's not put them through the most prestigious schools. It's not to buy them a car. It's not to let them do things that you think maybe they shouldn't do. It is to love their mother. And really what he is saying is the number one thing you do as a parent is build your marriage. Love your spouse. Take those Dinners out, date nights, get, a, get away. One of the things that Betty and I did over the, all of our years of marriage is every year around our anniversary, we went away for a weekend. And we made that happen even when we had no money to our name. There was one year we weren't gonna do it. I, I, we didn't have money, I was in seminary. And my wife, unbeknownst to me, had been squirreling some money away. And so even though I didn't plan one, she did and she kidnapped me one night from work I got off at midnight she came and picked me up because it was snowing and I was on my bicycle and and she got in the car and said uh, we need to run down to Lincolnshire because we're almost out of gas and I thought this is odd midnight we only lived a half a mile away from where I worked and I got out to fill up the car and lo and behold there's a suitcase in the back of our car it had become so important for, to us even though we didn't always do the best job connecting during the year there were some things that were saying we want to make this happen because the marriage matters that much not just for us but for our children regroup it will produce happier parents it will produce holy parents and it will produce united parents one of the things that unhappy spouses do is weaponize whatever is available to them to use against their spouse money sex in-laws but especially children and so dad tries to discipline a child mom sympathizes steps in with a child makes dad look like the bad guy or mom gives a son permission to do something not a moral issue at all she tells him yes dad comes home and he overrules her. He makes mom look bad in front of the children. There's, there's not a united front. And kids, kids pick up very young that they can play mom and dad off against each other. And then what do you think they're going to do when they're spouses in their marriages? My encouragement to you is to, if you are listening this morning and saying some of the things that you're talking about are true of our marriage, it may or may not be true of it happened when kids come along, but that's when a lot of change takes place. Get alone with your Bible and ask God to show you how much He loves your marriage and its role As gospel advertisement. To to realize that this is the greatest gift you can give your kids. Forget putting them through college if that's what it takes. To reprioritize your marriage. Repent where you should. Humble yourself and ask forgiveness. At a time when neither of you are angry, drag your conflicts out of the closet and talk about them like adults do. Do Pray. Pray together. Talk about what to do differently. Get a book. Get help from somebody you trust. Uh, uh, Bottom line, don't just settle. Don't just settle. Your kids deserve more than that. Jesus deserves more than that. And you deserve more than that. Dads and moms, attend to your marriage. All right, second point. And dads. I hope you wore your steel-toed shoes this morning. Dads assume the priority parenting responsibility. Dads assume the parenting responsibility. I have this book here called gospel, Gospel-Powered Parenting, How the Gospel Shapes and Transforms Parenting. Bill Farley went to his publisher and said, you should do a book on fatherhood. And this was his publisher's response. Bill, books on fatherhood don't sell. Our studies show that 80% of the books on parenting are purchased by mothers. They read them and give them to their husbands, but their husbands seldom read them. Guys, is that true? Dads, when was the last time you read anything on parenting? Uh, How about this question? When was the last time you read anything on parenting that your wife didn't give you? And here's what I mean when I say I hope you have your steel toes on this morning. go back to genesis chapter 3 when first sin happened you remember the story god says don't eat from this tree and eve says after she listens to the serpent well it's looks good for food it's beautiful and i can get smart with it and so she takes some and then she goes to adam and she says honey You should try this and he says okay and then we get to Genesis 3 verse 9 and it says and God went looking for Eve the man now let me ask you a question do you think that God was in the dark about what happened when he went looking for the man do you think he had misplaced Adam and couldn't find him? I mean, he calls out, a- Adam, where are you? He knew right where he was at. He knew exactly what had happened. He's going to give Adam a chance to come clean. Where are you? I, I hid because I-, I realized I was naked. Well, how did how'd you figure that out? Did you eat some of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat? Yeah, but it was that woman you gave me. She gave it to me and I ate. It's her fault. Well, let's forget about where things go with God and Eve. Let's just think about who did God start with? Adam. Why? Why? Because he's the one responsible for the marriage and he's the one responsible for the home and he's the one who's going to answer one day when we give an account for our families. It's not going to be our wives. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, another passage I think we we get preoccupied in the debate in the passage. We get preoccupied with the thing that we shouldn't. So I want you to know there's... that. Ooh, that's a wrong chapter. Chapter 11, verse 3. Where's verse 3 at? There we are. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of, a, of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So this begins the battle. Whoa, what about a woman's position? Really, is she inferior to man? No, no, no. Not unless you're willing to say that Christ is inferior to God. Here's the order. God the Father, God the Son, man, woman. And, and the debate, unfortunately, devolves into a debate about, well, are not we equal? Yeah. Men and women are equal. But there's an order of responsibilities. See, guys look at passages like this and they think, oh, I can become... Caesar in my home and I tell my wife to jump and she says how high no 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 this is about who's got to answer for what's going on in the home the Bible says that all of us as believers are one day going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for all that we said and did while in the body and if I understand passages like this I think that means that the question about the Home and the marriage that I had is going to be directed at me and not at Betty. Why? Because I'm the responsible one. It's not about power. It's about accountability, guys. Dads, assume the parenting responsibility. And you say, well, I, I don't know how I can do that. I work 10 hours a day, um, And my wife is home all day with the kids, so really she does most of the parenting. It's not about who does the lion's share of the parenting. It's about who answers to God for the parenting. It's about who feels the weight of responsibility for healthy parenting in the home. We're not just as dads, co-parents, or assistant parents. We are chief parents. Let me read a section out of this book, wonderful chapter called Gospel Fathers. Farley says this, throughout scripture, fathers are the parents and their wives are the, their assistants. The wife is a crucial assistant. Parenting is a team sport, very hard to do alone. But in a two-parent family, dad is the chief parent, the one accountable to God for his family. Mom is there to assist him. Western culture used to assume this arrangement. Before 1830, virtually every manual on parenting was addressed to fathers. Nancy Gibbs, writing in Time magazine, notes, From the Reformation until the 1830s, most parenting manuals were written for fathers. Before this time, society assumed that mothers were assistant fathers. Now, it is assumed that fathers are assistant mothers. Why did previous generations assume the father's lead role? because culture assumed that the Bible was the primary instruction manual for parents, and the Bible addressed its parenting instructions not to mothers, but to fathers. The unstated assumption in the modern evangelical church is the opposite. Mom is the chief parent, and dad is her assistant. Now, I wish I had time to develop this from Scripture, but it is, a, it is literally impossible to go to the Scripture and conclude anything other than what he's just said in here in other words guys if things are all out of control in the home we're the ones responsible to see that that changes if there's a home in which harshness is the rule we're the ones to see that that changes if, if, if there's a home in which children are doing ungodly things and they're not adults yet we're the ones to see to some changes. We're the one to feel that responsibility. We share as moms and dads, we share finances, we share child duties, we share discipline, we share the child problems as well as the joy. But dads, we're the ones who answer for our marriages and our families. We're the ones who should feel the weight if change is needed. And let me just say something to you mothers here. If I'm talking to your husband And he really needs to man up. Don't jump in to rescue him all the time. You know what I'm saying? If he's not shouldering the responsibility and weight that he should be, the easiest thing in the world, I'm sure, for you as a mom is to, I'll take care of it. He's failing to, I'll take care of it. I've used the phrase for probably almost 30 years in church ministry because I do this sometimes. Sometimes there's a wonderful thing to get the right people doing what they should called benign neglect in other words if you jump in to rescue someone all of the time they're not going to feel the responsibility after after all there's going to be somebody else there to pick up the pieces but if you really believe what I'm saying this morning that this is your husband's job to direct to shape to correct to mold then maybe you should just step back sometimes and let him sink or swim. So dads, if you have problems in the home, address them. Discuss things with your wife. Take her by the hand and pray and cry out in desperation. And I know, guys, we want to look like we know everything. Your wife knows you don't. So feel, pre- feel free to pray with her in desperate confession to God. Say, God, I don't even know what to do next. Would you help us? Dream up solutions together. Read books or articles together. I highly recommend this book. Uh, seek help if needed from somebody you trust, a counselor, um, just another Christian whose family you admire. Initiate things. I, to me, that's the greatest. The two words that I think about Uh, when I think about men's responsibility in marriage and the families, is responsibility and initiation. In other words, God's not looking for you to do everything, but to initiate, to be the initiator. The temptation is for both of you, moms and dads, to leave here. It's 10.08. You'll be out of here by 10.15 or so. Say hi to some people, get in your cars, and go home, and not think about this again until two weeks. And some of you should. And if you have gotten the sermon notes, there are, actually there are this, uh, this, today there are more things to, to think about than normal. I have a lot of questions that I'm asking married couples. Things like if you're married on a scale from one to ten with one being not far from divorce and ten being not far from heaven, what would you give your marriage? What number? What would your wife give you? Or what would your husband give it? These are kinds of things that Betty and I have found these kinds of things can help open the doors of conversation. If you just sit down and use somebody else's writing to start the conversation rolling. Your spouse wants to have a marriage most of you I would assume your spouse wants to have a great marriage and I would assume most of you want to have a great marriage never happens by accident one of the great um, uh, mistakes that our culture has come to buy into is that there is this perfect person for us and it's called the soulmate that's right it's my soulmate I got news for you most people who marry their soulmates have marriage troubles I married my soulmate we don't have a perfect marriage it's really good we're just outside heaven's door but it's taken a lot a lot of work and the work has made it glorious and the work can make your marriage glorious, and the great beneficiaries, not just you and him or you and her, but those little kids that are watching, that are looking, that are listening, that are checking the Geiger counters, and what kind of children do you want to produce? Let's pray. Father, we love you. So glad you love us in spite of our imperfections. And for many husbands and wives, we do that as well with each other. We love each other despite our imperfections. But we also want to achieve the maximum joy potential that resides within our marriage. We want to have the kinds of homes in which our children find great joy and delight. Uh, It doesn't mean that they applaud all our decisions, but that they feel the safety, they feel hope, they feel security. (laughs) As as one researcher said, most children will say they object to some of the things that their parents do, but confide in, in their teenage years that they will probably parent the same way their parents do. And so we want to be able to lay a wonderful foundation for this next generation in our marriages, in our homes. And I pray especially for our dads, Lord. I, I know that for many of us, it's hard to get those awkward conversations started. But would you, if nothing else this morning, would you lay a, a, almost a physical sense of weight upon the shoulders of every dad here? that we would feel that responsibility. If that weight is currently resting on our wives' shoulders, I pray that in our mind's eye, we would graciously take that, it's not theirs to bear, and that we would move it to our shoulders and say, okay, God, where do I go from here? What's my next steps? And have the courage to have those conversations with you, those conversations with our wives, those conversations with our children, and if need be, conversations with others so that we can be all we can be. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.